Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. The global geopolitical landscape is shifting towards Asia. It can be seen in China's bold infrastructure project reopening the historic Silk Road and in the maritime success of port cities like Shanghai, Hong Kong and Singapore. Asia is rising, but so are its connections to Central Asia, Turkey and Europe. Perhaps the best word to capture the emerging global order is Eurasian. At the Melbourne launch of his new book, The Dawn of Eurasia, Bruno Massage discusses the increasing strategic significance of Eurasia, the dominance of China, Russia and the EU, and how the United States is redefining its place in between. Bruno was in conversation with Dr Ewan Graham, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. His visit was supported by Adelaide Writers Week. It was held at the State Library of Victoria on 7th of March 2019. So I'm delighted uh, that we've been joined um, tonight by uh, Bruno uh, Masayas, uh, who um, is coming towards the end of his uh, visit to, to Australia. Bruno uh, was until recently a senior advisor uh, uh, based in London uh, with Flint Global, uh, but now has made the move to Beijing, um, where he is, uh, among other things, a senior fellow at Renmin University, uh, but also has an affiliation back to the Hudson Institute in Washington. Uh, he's well known uh, from his official career as being the Europe Minister in, in Portugal uh, from 2013 to 2015. He was a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute uh, and at the Car- Carnegie Institute and Brussels. So his footsteps have taken him, I think, well and uh, truly throughout the Eurasian canvas that we're here tonight to discuss uh, on the back of Bruno's uh, new book, which uh, at the end of our conversation tonight will be available outside uh, for Bruno to, to sign uh, in, the, in the lobby for those um, who, who are able to stay on uh, and to buy a copy. I thoroughly recommend it. It's a fascinating read, and I think we're going to have a really um, good conversation around some of those themes. Um, my impression, um, Bruno, welcome. Uh, is that, um, if you like, the, the genius of the way you've approached the book is that it, it is a deceptively light read, and I mean that in a good way, that this is geopolitics, but geopolitics that's accessible to a, a lay audience, uh, which I think is important. A lot of us have lost the, the art of looking geopolitically at the world um, throughout the, the long post-Cold War period, uh, when um, non-state actors, terrorism in particular, was the dominant security lens through which people looked at the, at the world. Uh, and some of that um, uh, focus has, has been lost, uh, including within governments. I think it's good that you're reintroducing that vocabulary uh, to us. Um, I also like the fact that although you're selling a, a particular narrative around a, re- a revived Eurasia, uh, it's not done through any kind of supremacist lens. You're not uh, putting uh, Asia on a particular pedestal. There is a, a vogue for doing that. Um, but I think it, your, your approach is also uh, commendably uh, subtle in blending these various poles of power uh, throughout this Eurasian landscape. So I'd like to start with a few, conversa- a few um, questions to lead us through a conversation and then allow plenty of time to you uh, in the audience to ask um, your own questions of, of Bruno. And maybe just starting with this, that your vision of a, a Eurasian supercontinent with diffuse borders is, is a very alluring one. 
but how does this square with the decidedly 19th century view uh, of the two largest states in Eurasia, China uh, and Russia, which make up the bulk of its landmass uh, and power? Uh, even if Russia and China stick together, doesn't their attachment to a kind of 19th century hyper-sovereignty uh, place fundamental constraints on how far that integration can actually proceed? Uh, good, uh, good evening to everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, not, um, not necessarily. I don't think so. Um, I think the world we're entering is similar to 19th century Europe on a grand scale. Uh, I sometimes think that if we want to understand the world today, you have only to make a rough analogy to 19th century Europe. In place of Russia, you have China. In place of uh, Russia, you'll have uh, Russia. In place of France, you'll have the European Union. And uh, instead of the United Kingdom, you'll have the United States, a bit separate from Eurasia, involved in its affairs from a distance, an island on the shores of Eurasia. And that also means that it's a very competitive world, but very integrated. The 19th century Europeans called themselves Europeans, but they, their worldview was a worldview based on competition against the other main poles, the other major powers. Um, the, I think the, the remarkable thing about Eurasia today is that it is a very uh, constricted place. Uh, you have these uh, great powers uh, looking for space, looking to expand their worldview, uh, and so clashing against each other in a space that is looking smaller and smaller. Uh, if you think about the European Union, if you think about Russia, if you think about China, I would say all of them are universalist in nature. All of them want to change their neighbors in a certain direction. All of them want to shape a new Eurasia according to their own ideas, according to their own rules. Uh, and then we also have to add smaller players, uh, Japan, Iran, and of course India, uh, who may be part of, of, of the main group uh, soon enough. Uh, and so it's a very dangerous game, but a very exciting game. Uh, and I would say the moment we're in is a moment when uh, Eurasia is already integrated in many respects, trade, infrastructure, finance, uh, even culture to some extent, but it's not politically integrated. So again, similar to 19th century Europe or to 18th century Europe, where the continent is a single whole. Lots of people think of themselves as being part of that single whole, artists, uh, financiers, businessmen. But politically, it's very fractured uh, with many competing projects of how to organize it. In Europe, we had 100 or 200 years of struggle about how Europe should be organized. Only today, with the European Union, is the question settled. And I suggest in the book that we should get ready for uh, 100 years, um, or a bit less, or a bit more, of Eurasian uh, conflict uh, for the final shape of the supercontinent. You laid out there um, the, the players involved, more than just Russia and China, as I alluded to, but you talked also about India and Japan. Um, so it's, it's naturally a more multipolar environment. But just to focus in on one of those competing visions, the Belt and Road Initiative, which I know is something that you've been working very closely on uh, and indeed have uh, written another book on, um, is China's Belt and Road Initiative more a cause or a symptom of the increasing importance of Eurasia, in your view? 
I think it's a project to organize Eurasia. So in that sense, it is a symptom. Um, it is perhaps the first major power that realizes that this is where the fate of the world is going to be decided. And when you look at the maps of the Belt and Road, what you see is a certain vision for the future of Eurasia. The United States has disappeared to the other side of the map, has become an island. And Eurasia is uh, a little bit uh, what the Roman Empire was. Uh, there are roads, uh, they all lead to Beijing, and there are railways, there's deep integration, uh, but the center is Beijing. So in that sense, after writing this book, uh, if I wanted to be logical about it, I should write a book about China's plan for Eurasia, Russia's plans for Eurasia, Europe's plans for Eurasia, America's plans for Eurasia. So we four books, which I may end up doing, uh, but uh, at least I wanted to write one of them. It seemed to me the most important, China's plans for Eurasia, and that's uh, my second book. The, the terminology Belt and Road has, has replaced um, the one belt, one road. And when you said all roads lead to Beijing, I think that was the kind of perhaps unintended symbol in, in that original formulation of one belt, one road. Do you think that uh, in branding terms, how one actually formulates these, these competing visions makes a good deal of difference to how persuasive they are? Yes, that's a very interesting discussion, which I've had in Beijing with officials. The name has changed. In Chinese, um, it was always Itailu, uh, one belt, one road, and it hasn't changed. Uh, in English, it was called at one point one belt, one road, a direct translation of the Chinese. But uh, as someone explained to me uh, in the State Council in Beijing, that made it look like too limited, uh, too, uh, uh, too simple, that it was just one specific project. They wanted something more, uh, something vaguer and more uh, expansive that could change and shift with time and even perhaps a bit more mysterious and so Belt and Road metaphorical in, 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 in its, um, uh, in its uh, very definition I think they were attracted to that uh, by the way in Chinese Itailu one Belt one Road is metaphorical it's only when you translate to English that it becomes a bit too technical one Belt one Road so they want something that is metaphorical, and in the book I compare it to the concept and the idea of the West, which is also a metaphor, uh, but a metaphor that became the, the, the representative of a certain global political and economic order. So sometimes people say the, the, the past equivalent to the Belt and Road is the Marshall Plan. I don't think so. I think the past equivalent to the Belt and Road, and it's not just past but also present, is the West the idea of the West, which the Belt and Road deliberately wants to replace. Within the Belt and Road, there is the Silk Road, predominantly the land uh, dimension, uh, but there's also the Maritime uh, Silk Road. And I'd like to interrogate this idea of Eurasia a little bit more from alternating continentalist and maritime lenses. And I think towards the end of the book, you certainly declare yourself as a, a, an enthusiast for land. Um, are you, in a sense, a, a man kind of after Alfred Mackinder's own heartland? Um, it seems to me that your, your confidence about those connections across the Eurasian landmass, that they can trump those over water, depends not only on the scale of geopolitical ambition, but more prosaically and fundamentally on the economics of, of transportation. Um, the maritime empires of, of Portugal, of, of Spain, France, England, Holland, 
were all founded on that physical fact that maritime tr trade and its, mir its military analogue sea power were able to outflank overland caravans and, and armies. Has technological change flattened the earth to a degree that it makes Mackinder's domination of the heartland viable now in a way that wasn't the case in the 20th century? Right, it's an interesting question about the relative importance of uh, sea and land. By the way, I think Belt and Road, really, if you want to translate it into non-metaphorical or less metaphorical language, you could call it land and sea. The belt is, is, is the land part of the initiative, and the road is the sea part. And I'll explain in a second this uh, apparent paradox that you actually call the sea route a road, and you call the land route a belt. That's very easy to explain. But so the, the, the relative importance of, of these two, um, these two geographies, these two spaces, some authors are, are obsessed, fascinated by this contrast between land and sea. I never quite, never quite understood that. Uh, never quite. Uh, there's a, a, a famous and very polemical um, thinker, Carl Schmidt, that wrote a whole book dedicated to his daughter. So it's a, in some respects, almost a, a child's book, explaining the relative importance of sea and land in the history of mankind. Uh, I think it's important here in Australia because you consider yourselves essentially a sea nation. Um, I'm, I'm less convinced that this is a critical distinction. In, in the second book, I'm very interested in ports uh, as the connection between uh, land and sea, and in particular as the connection between industry and transportation, because I actually see that transportation will continue to be essentially seaborne. Uh, but what happens on land that doesn't happen on sea, and here I, I try to answer your question more directly, what happens on land is uh, industrial development. I even wonder if, as we moved from the Portuguese and Dutch empires, we were also, to the British Empire, we we're also moving from commercial civilizations to industrial civilizations, with the Industrial Revolution in Britain. Uh, as you know, it didn't happen in Portugal and it didn't happen in the Netherlands. As, and, and the British Empire was, uh, I think, uh, much more land-based than, than the uh, Portuguese Empire. We never left the coasts. Um, what happens is that uh, in the Belt and Road, uh, industrial development is really critical to the Belt and Road. And that happens on land. That happens through the creation of industrial parks uh, and through the creation of corridors or belts where different parts of a single geography can specialize in different things. The vision that uh, China has is not that different from the vision that you have today in the European Union. You have belts of economic development. In the Czech Republic, uh, cars are assembled. Some of the most valuable parts are produced in Germany. Uh, they move back and forth uh, across corridors of transportation. And you build these uh, nodes of specialization in different components of industrial products, and then you connect them, and you're able to develop um, uh, value chains across borders. And China is trying to do the same on a, on a grander scale across Eurasia with new transportation links and also with industrial development uh, through industrial parks. So in that sense, I do think that maybe one could argue that land is more important because it's where... It's where the next industrial revolution is going to happen. And 
China is, of course, very interested in, in uh, leading the next industrial revolution of uh, automated cars, robotics, artificial intelligence, and biotechnology. You reference Australia as a sea nation. It may actually be more accurate to think of it as a beach nation. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's an unusual country, and maybe at the end we can come back to some of your impressions on this visit, but being both a continent uh, and an island nation uh, as well as it leads to some interesting um, paradoxical uh, identities and expressions of that identity. Um, but on that theme of technology, that, um, that reminds me that in your chapter on Chinese dreams in the book, you talk about the contrast between Western and, and Asian experiences when it comes to change, uh, specifically as a, asserting that individuals in Asia have a much more personal relationship with it. For example, while, while Westerners have gradually been exposed to computer technology since the 1980s, many Asians' first experience with a computer came, uh, came in the form of a, of a smartphone, and they may have grown up without um, electricity, as you, as you um, illustrate. Do you think this gives Asian countries an advantage in terms of adapting to and embracing technology? And if so, what impact might have this have in the military strategic sphere? Yes, I, I think... Um in, in some sense, now if you want to see the future, you have to go to Beijing. Uh, and it's, it's the reason I live there. Uh, just before coming here, I went to have dinner with my wife. We went to a restaurant where the cooks, the chef and the cooks were robots. And uh, the waiters were robots as well. I think the robots did a good job. Uh, in, in, in the waiters did a good job. I'm not sure about the cooks, to be honest. But maybe they'll get better. I wasn't impressed. Um, where everyone uses the cell phone to make payments and where, and I think this is even more important, I'm always struck by how a country that was uh, rural, uh, provincial, um, agricultural based uh, for millennia, uh, the migrant workers coming from the countryside into the city, they adapt so quickly and so easily to the taxi drivers. Uh, they uh, use, of course, the app equivalent to Uber, uh, all the payments are done electronically, and uh, it, it's it's actually uh, it's been more difficult for me to adapt to that than these migrant workers coming from the countryside. The country is in love with change. The country is comfortable with change. Take a high-speed train from Wurumqi uh, uh, to uh, Gan to the Gansu province. Again, people that have lived in in those villages uh, forever, um, they are so comfortable taking a high-speed train. You board a high-speed train in China in about seven minutes and a half. And this is, we're talking about, in some cases, 2,000, 3,000 people. And I'm thinking in Portugal, it would take about uh, two hours for 2,000 people to board the train. But you know, the, the, the discipline and the concentration and um, being comfortable with change and, and being comfortable with technology. And I try to explain why, and I don't have a final answer. It's one of those questions that I also left a little bit for later. I'll have other opportunities to try to answer it. But I think one possible explanation is that Asians, I think it's true of Japan and Korea, to a greater extent of China, had, had to do in the space of a generation what the West did in the space of three or 400 years. And that's very important because these fundamental dramatic changes in the West, they sometimes happen beyond the lifespan of a single individual. So that actually during the lifespan of your life, things were relatively stable. And it's over two or three generations that the changes were dramatic. 
So no one really saw the very dramatic changes. I think in South Korea and in China, uh, uh, extraordinary dramatic changes happen through the lifetime of a single person. And that kind of, I think psychologically in China, it kind of broke psychologically the whole of tradition on the Chinese mind. And now everyone is just like, uh, let's do it. Uh, whatever happens, happens. But let's, let's move towards this scary but exciting future. As you mentioned, um, Japan was the first real modernizing experiment in, in Asia. Uh, Korea, sort of in, in conscious emulation of that model, shortened the timeline considerably. Uh, and now China, China seems to be um, breaking those records yet, yet further. But just to bring geography back into those three examples, China obviously, uh, in its own identity, has a, a, a Middle Kingdom mentality. South Korea is an unusual uh, appendage to the uh, Europe supercontinent in that it is a peninsula geographically, but because of politics, it's a virtual island. Uh, but nonetheless, it has a clear Asian-leaning identity. But Japan is an island country, uh, and um, I wondered if you think that, having mentioned Japan early on as, as a Eurasian country, is that uh, an assumption one can take for granted? Do you think that that identity is shared in your conversations with Japanese officials and ordinary people? I know, I know it wasn't part of your, your travelogue in the book. Well, I think, uh, of course, Japan is, is where you should start if you're interested in these issues because it's the country in Asia that, um, uh, that first realized that uh, you'd have to become modern. And so, great, so many great Japanese novels about this problem. Um, that you could not remain a traditional society because you would disappear. Such was the power and, and, and the drive of, of, of the modern Western civilization. Um, and that created a dynamic that was very destructive, I think, in Japan. Uh, because in Japan it took the form of imitating the West, uh, imitating the outside forms of the West, imitating technology, imitating material power. Many writers, I, I would recommend Tanizaki as the start, have speculated about uh, the destructive impact this had in Japan, uh, uh, of course, until 1945 and, and the self-destruction of the country. But um, uh, the way it was solved after 1945 is a way that is very different from China. Uh, Japan accepted that it would live under the protection and, 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 and the hegemony of the United States. Uh, so when people think it's very common today to make an analogy between China and Japan, to say, for example, that China will have a financial crisis similar to the Japanese one, or it will stagnate, and what some people regard as the problem of China will go away. There's a critical difference that Japan accepted, being defeated in the war, that it would be part of the American world, very prosperous and very developed part, but part of the American world, and China does not accept that. Um, and so what do we have now? The trade dispute, you could compare it to the trade dispute that happened in the 80s between the United States and Japan. But in the 80s, it was solved because the United States made it clear, your security depends on us and we'll solve this trade dispute in a way that is satisfactory to us. Those were the Plaza Accords in 1982, I believe, with, with Reagan. Uh, they're not going to be Plaza Accords this time around. Uh, China is going to fight uh, and the United States is going to fight and both of them are going to fight back. And I think we're in for something very different from, from the 80s and with Japan. As you mentioned the United States there, which you have an interesting 
um, symbol, looking at it as a, a mirror on, uh, on on Eurasia, a shape shifter. I think you also call it. But to jump forward uh, and um, preempt the inevitable question about President Trump, which I'm sure has dominated all of your lectures so far, but I'm going to ask one that you have introduced yourself into the narrative by saying, at the end, towards the end of the book, and I quote, "If Obama pivoted to Asia, Trump has pivoted to Eurasia." Can you elaborate on that? I think uh, Trump has has become a symbol of, of important changes that are happening in America. This is the book I'm working on now. Um, uh, has America become less Euro- European and less Western? Is America finally developing its own distinctive civilization? Um, for the past 200 years, I believe, or at least until very recently, America existed in the shadow of Europe. As I read for the next book, the 19th century, America existed in the shadow of Britain, economic and financial. If Britain wanted to uh, send a message to the U.S., they could. Uh, The financial control over the American economy was was, uh, complete. Many people are not entirely aware of this. And then in the 20th century, there was still a lot of cultural influence and European cultural hegemony over the United States. And I think it's only really let us say in the 60s and 70s, that the United States starts to take a turn away from this traditional Western European world. Uh, And with Reagan, things are more different. And for Europeans like myself, the story is a story where the American president looks stranger and stranger every time, with a little exception, maybe with Obama. Um, Because Reagan, we can't believe that he's there. Uh, Then George W. Bush would say, oh, wish we had Reagan. Uh, and now with Trump would say, well, can George Bush come back? And I actually think that after Trump, we'll get something more dramatic than Trump in terms of a new America. Uh, and this is an America that um, as is giving up on, on its plan to, to make the whole world look American. It's an America that is trying to preserve its power, uh, to constrain the power of its major rivals, uh, but an America that is becoming less liberal, uh, an America that is uh, treading its own path. And I see Trump, uh, whenever he shows any sign of geopolitical understanding, which in some cases may not be him, in other cases may be intuitive, that's always a problem with analyzing Trump, that you want to analyze it, but at the same time you feel a bit ashamed to attribute to Trump very sophisticated ideas. Um, But sometimes those ideas are instinctive, uh, and I think they are in the case of Trump. He's shown a certain uh, ability to uh, look uh, dictators in the face and see what they, what the, the role they can play, uh, without this uh, evangelical disposition that Europeans always have, uh, and an ability to play Europe against Russia, which he has been doing consistently for two years, and play. I think soon he'll be trying to play Russia against China, um, to play to try to balance power in Eurasia. Uh, rather than being focused on Europe as a sort of a pro- prolongation of American uh, uh, ideas. Uh, indeed, it's a, a criticism of, uh, of Donald Trump that he seems often to be visibly more uh, comfortable in the presence of, uh, of strong men and dictators than he is in, uh, with democratic uh, allies. Um, now he has a, a well-known relationship with Russia, which is a, a segue to that other uh, important player which we should ask you about. Do you think Russia's unique history and identity uh, astride Europe and Asia, uh, does that mean a rejuvenation in the Eurasian age? Or will the development of new economic corridors to Russia's south, um, particularly those under Chinese auspices, 
run the risk of uh, bypassing and, and diminishing Russia. There's uh, two countries that I'm very interested in in the book, obviously, uh, Turkey and Russia, because they are countries that straddling Europe and Asia. Uh, there were always countries that struggled with this. They were on the periphery of Europe. If I'm right and we're entering a world where Eurasia is integrated, uh, perhaps it will be the case that countries like Turkey and Russia will have a, a second lease of life and find themselves much more comfortable in this new world. Now, I, as a critic of, of, of President Putin's uh, regime, I don't think that will happen under Putin, but the book is not about the next two years. The book is about, to some maybe I'm being a bit too immodest here, but uh, sometimes I'm, I'm actually trying to look at the world 50 or even 100 years from now. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Russia will feel more comfortable in this world. You already see some signs of that. So Russia doesn't want to abandon the West, but it wants to position itself in between Asia and the West uh, as a bridge between the two. Uh, that's now a very uh, enviable position. Uh, in some respects, it imitates Europe, but in other respects, it's already openly imitating China on Internet governance, for example. The news from the past week is that Russia is embracing the uh, Chinese model of Internet governance and Internet censorship. Uh, and then the way Russia has been moving into the Middle East, trying to control energy sources in the core of Eurasia, with a view, in my opinion, of uh, being able to look east, look west, uh, play one uh, buyer against another, uh, be able to uh, manipulate energy prices because Russia will control all energy sources, and it will be able to sell to China or to Europe. Uh, and to play one, one buyer against the other. Uh, clearly, Russia is interested in occupying this central position in Eurasia. And rather than looking to Europe, uh, looking to integrate itself in Europe, uh, it seems clear that uh, Russia wants to occupy a leading position in the center of Eurasia where the Middle East is included. Now, as I said at the um, introduction, one of the um, beauties of the book is that it works both as, as a travel book as well as geopolitics. Um, so just to get into some of the characters that you meet during your journey, including Vasiliev, the Russian archaeologist from, from Astrakhan, and Mahanad, the Jordanian trader living in Yiwu, China, and Maria, the Slavic woman from Kentau, Kazakhstan, whose ancestors migrated from the Ukraine many generations before. Do you consider and these to embody quintessential Eurasian qualities or, or attitudes? Uh, and I ask you that because I think it would be a, uh, a fair assumption that those who maybe are more skeptical of the idea of whether there is a, a, a Eurasian commonality, that this is uh, just too large a, a spread of real estate to really... Uh, hang together as a coherent concept. So if you just join up your own that kind of micro-level experiences with the broader picture. The book came out of a, of a very long journey, six months, uh, starting uh, near the Caspian Sea and then going all the way to Vladivostok and then back to Central Asia over six months, uh, trying to investigate this idea of Europe and Asia, but, but looking at other things in uh, on the way, uh, not just uh, completely obsessed about that question. Um, the characters are, I think, the main the main reason I wanted to have these characters is to show people in the West, people in Europe, that uh, 
that dreams are being built in, in other parts of the world and complicated lives are being lived and uh, human experience is, is, is being uh, uh, felt uh, sometimes more deeply than it is felt in Brussels or Paris. So I wanted to show that there is a more complicated world that people there think. And I also wanted to show that some of these characters, they wouldn't think about Europe, Paris or Berlin a single second in their lives. Uh, their eyes and their dreams are turned elsewhere. And what happens many times is that they are they sort of crisscross Eurasia. There are people in Russia that are looking to China, but there are people in Russia that are looking to Europe, and there are people in Kazakhstan that are looking to Turkey, and people in Turkey that are looking to India. So as these life stories intersect, by the end, you have this map of Eurasia with lots of crisscrossing lines, which is the idea I want to convey, rather than the image which some people have in Europe, and I think it is intelligible to you as Australians, that everyone would be turning their eyes to Europe and all the lines would be going there. And, and, and that's no longer the case. I think actually the book has been more successful showing that that is no longer the case through the characters and the stories and through the arguments and, and the ideas. Um, you are European after all, um, and from the extreme western extremity of Europe at that. Uh, have you found it more difficult to sell the concept of Eurasia within Europe than you do within uh, the, these other places that um, you've mentioned? Of course, that's a good question. Uh, I many times make the comment of, about the reaction I get when I talk about Eurasia. When I talk about Eurasia in Russia, people are happy. They think it is a, a Russian idea, and uh, it is true that the, that the word is popular there. Uh, when I talk about it in China, people are very interested and want to hear more, and there are books appearing on bookshelves about Eurasia. When I talk about Eurasia in Europe, people are very disturbed by the idea. Um, they don't like it. Uh, they think it's scary. They don't want to stop being Europeans. They think it's special to be European. Uh, and they don't want to dilute that, that identity. Uh, when I wanted to be really provocative, and when was that? When, when, when the book came out in the first week, and I wrote a few pieces for newspapers, when you really want to create trouble because it helps the uh, life of the book, uh, I wrote a couple of pieces saying that Europe is disappearing, it's being replaced by Eurasia. Uh, and that sends uh, some people in Europe into a kind of uh, shock. Um, but uh, it's maybe not surprising because, after all, we have to realize that this idea of Europe was built, and I explained this in the book, as a kind of a sign of privilege. We are better, we are more advanced, and it's the Europeans that invented Asia. They invented Asia as the anti-Europe, as the things that they invented Asia as the thing, as combining all the things that Europe had freed itself from. The myth is a myth where Europe emerged from Eurasia into the light, leaving Asia behind. And then Europeans throughout the centuries, 18th, 19th, were supposed to look to Asia as a way to say, look all that we have achieved. We are not like them. So it's not surprising that even today that way of thinking persists. Okay, great. Um, I'd now like to take it over um, to you from the floor. Um, can you, I just ask you to identify yourself, wait until the mic um, comes, and then keep your question or comment as, um, as brief as possible so that we can get as many responses from, the, um, from Bruno as we can. Uh, thank you, David Olson. I'm a, a lawyer that's got an interest in this area. Um, you've been travelling around Australia talking to lots of people in Australia. I'd be interested in your views as to what you think, we think about Eurasia. You know, we, we talk about China, 
this talk about the Indo-Pacific, we don't, as a foreign policy uh, point of view, have any Eurasian strategies. And I just wonder, you know, whether you think we think about that. Should we be thinking about it, and how might we go about developing a strategy? Of, of course. Uh, uh, for reasons that I think you can guess already, I think Eurasia is a prime, uh, Australia is a prime candidate to to becoming a Eurasian nation. Uh, I tweeted uh, when I arrived in Australia that sentence that uh, Australia can become the first Eurasian nation in history. And then to my utter shock, as I was reading some essays in this wonderful new journal that's been published in Australia called uh, Australian Foreign Affairs, AFA, uh, there was an essay uh, uh, discussing some of these issues, and there was a quote from Paul Keating, your former prime minister, in 1992 in a speech he gave, where he says, Australia can become the first Eurasian nation in human history. Um, so I was both uh, glad and, and a bit upset. Uh, now, this is kind of obvious as an idea, because uh, Australia is this uh, uh, contradictory uh, country in the sense that your... Uh, history heritage uh, is so deeply connected to Europe that, as I saw in Adelaide, maybe less common here and in Sydney, some people told me that their mothers or grandmothers still talk about Britain as home, even though they haven't been ever been there or they have been as tourists for a week. So this heritage is, of course, present and it's not going to disappear next year. Uh, your alliance is with the United States, security alliance, but then your geography uh, on, especially if we want to get rid of this idea of a fifth continent, you are in Asia, or at least your neighbors are Asian. You're, I think your closest neighbor is, is Indonesia, not New Zealand, right? Correct? Uh, you, I, I would imagine it's very easy to see looking at the map. Uh, and your connections to China, economic connections are growing and becoming more and more important. So you have these two poles, and the challenge is how to balance them. And clearly, the idea of Eurasia as being a combination of Europe and Asia would be appealing for an Australian. In the book, I have uh, thirty seconds. In the book, I have a, a section where I try to talk about the the pioneering nations of Eurasia, and I give two examples: uh, Singapore and, and Hong Kong. And I think Australia has the ability to to take this even further, this idea of Eurasia, and do what Hong Kong and Singapore have done with huge success on a grander scale of a country of. 24 million people. That, I just wanted to jump in because in official terms, uh, Australia has adopted a new uh, geographical frame of reference, the Indo-Pacific, uh, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about in the last few days. But just interested in your impressions of that because it does seem to have grown very quickly to have been adopted actually first in Australia, uh, but now Japan, of course, the United States to the extent of renaming its Pacific Command, the Indo-Pacific Command. Are these contending narratives? No, for me, they, they're the same. And when I see the idea of the, of the Indo-Pacific becoming so popular, I see it as a reflex of the idea of Eurasia. Indo-Pacific is the naval equivalent of uh, the, the, the maritime, and, and in terms of security, naval equivalent of, of Eurasia. After all, the Indian takes you all the way to, um, to the Suez Canal and, and, and to Europe. Uh, and it would be a bit pedantic to insist on talking about the Mediterranean Indian Pacific. Uh, with Indian Pacific, you already have the arc of Eurasia, the Eurasian literal, uh, uh, well expressed. Uh, I had dinner yesterday with uh, someone I admire here in Australia, Roddy Metcalf, who I think is one of the creators of the concept. 
and we talked about this, and I think we agreed that um, Indo-Pacific and Eurasia are talking about similar things uh, to some extent. I just I, I think it, the way it's so popular here has to do with this uh, maritime island um, worldview that Australia has. Other questions from the floor? Uh, lady at the back. Hi. I'm not sure how loud this is. Uh, you mentioned that the belt refers to the land and the road refers to the sea. Could you clarify that? Right. I was starting to do it, but I didn't do it completely. Uh, so uh, on, on land, you can have a belt, which is a space, uh, is a corridor, a space of deep economic integration, where there will be different industrial parks separated from each other, where uh, people even can uh, travel and, and move. Uh, you know, I'm sure you can think about a belt in Australia, all, all the area going from Sydney to Melbourne, uh, which then will have uh, suburbs and will have middle cities that link the big cities. You can do this on land, create a corridor, which China has done very successfully at home, and now they want to export the concept. Uh, on sea, you cannot have a belt, by definition. What you can have is just a communication between two endpoints, because a belt or a corridor is, is more about the space in between the endpoints than about the endpoints. It's the space that you want to develop. Uh, a road is a communication between two endpoints. And so on sea, it actually makes sense to talk about a road. You see how it's not contradictory at all. Because on sea, you're just going from point A to point B. But on land, you are connecting point A to point B and developing the space between A and B. As a maritime person, I have to jump in on that by saying that you also have flexibility to move at sea anywhere you want between, within reason between point A and point B. The problem of your fixed infrastructure on land is um, if that road is closed, then you lose your, you lose your connection. Um, another question. Um, we'll take uh, those two gentlemen um, together, actually, if we can do that, if we relay the mic between them. Thank you very much for your talk. My name is Michael. I'm a student from Melbourne University. Um, my question is, in terms of from your travels, who's leading the world in bringing up generations that are culturally bilingual, in terms of teaching education and language, not not only across Asia but across Europe, mainly in terms of second language speakers and those that are well equipped to travel around the world and be informed in these conversations, as opposed to just taking in the mainstream media, which is this hysteria between great powers. Yes, so I think. Uh in my book, I talk about a very competitive uh, space and supercontinent, but there's also space here for combining cultures, uh, mixing cultures and worldviews. Uh, and I think uh, this idea of Australia as a Eurasian country could mean that. Um, I think it's already true that Australia is the place in the West that has a better understanding of China, and, and this could be developed. Uh, I know there's a debate that I been exposed to in Adelaide about teaching uh, uh, school children here a Mandarin and, and you know I think that that would be important clearly the situation we have now is not sustainable you have a, a, a major world power which will soon be the world's largest economy a great civilization a great literature um, and, and, and a great history and the rest of the world's or large parts of the rest of the world uh, exist uh, as if this country was a separate universe. People don't speak the language. We don't know the most basic cultural references about China. 
so this is clearly a, a, a situation that cannot be maintained, and the next generation has to change this, has to open the doors that are closing the communication between China and and, and, and the West in particular. Can I and, and if Australia can do something in, in that respect, I think it would be a, a great lesson to the, to the rest of the world. Bruno, I'd like to flip that around, and I, I know that there's gentlemen, if you just be patient for a, a, a moment. Isn't that also a blind spot for China, a weakness in its ability to export its own itself as, an, as a point of attraction across Eurasia that it is uh, so um, culturally, it has been introverted, uh, it's very homogenized. It's not the only country in Eurasia that is um, ethnically homogenized, but it is less so than others like Korea. But nonetheless, I think there is less of a tradition of looking out in China than there has been... Uh, in other parts of Eurasia. It strikes me also on that question of, of cultural bilingualism. One of the um, original meanings of Eurasian in, in colonial Singapore was to be of mixed parentage as well. Um, the, the idea that those um, people w- had the best of both worlds in a, in a kind of very li- literal sense. I'm just in, interested in your thought whether you accept that is a weakness for, for China in particular. Yes, uh, that's where the word comes from. In fact, is the the people of mixed descent in um, in Hong Kong, in uh, Singapore, in Malacca, uh, Portuguese and Chinese, they were Eurasians. And uh, in India as well, Brits and, and, uh, and Indians. Um, it is a weakness to some extent, but there's a different narrative there that I, that I would tend to favor. It's true that China was never westernized, uh, and it's perhaps the only country that was never really westernized. And you see that in everything, that even the, the, the signs, the sign language you use, the gestures you use are uh, that you think are universal. In China, you discover that they're not, especially if you get out of the big cities, you're in a taxi and you do this, and the taxi driver will look at you and, and, and ask, what, what, are, what are you saying? Um, because, you know, even basic, almost immediate, almost bodily uh, signs have, have, have not been absorbed. Um, and I think that's one reason that China is now in a position where it wants to create its own world order because it never really absorbed the Western. But that's a different thing, right? Because I think there's actually a lot of cultural openness and curiosity about the world in China. Um, we shouldn't think that the fact that China remains a very different culture with different cultural coordinates, that that means they're closed. Uh, they just operate with a different with a different worldview, uh, but they are open to, to other worldviews. And I think it's indisputable, whether, what, whatever you think about this, is indisputable that Chinese in general know a lot more about the West than the West knows about China. You've been very patient. <laughs> um, thank you, Bruno, for your insights. I'm just continuing on, well, David, and even the previous question. Um, are we as Australians um, taking enough steps to um, to make our own mark in a, in a future Eurasia? And if we aren't, what tangible steps can governments, businesses and individuals do? Difficult question. In the book, when I talk about Hong Kong and Singapore, I talk about them as being able to understand different worlds on their own terms. Um, I think the success of Hong Kong in particular was that you had people there, genuine Eurasians, not just in a racial sense, but in a cultural sense, who knew that China and the West were very different, and they understood them when, without trying to reduce them to, to the same. 
they knew how the Chinese political and economic system operated, but they were very good at understanding how finance in London operated, and they brought the two worlds together. So that's one sense in which Australia could become Eurasian, that you could be the country that understands China on its own terms and understands America and Europe on its own terms. Uh, and benefit enormously from that because China and Europe simply don't understand China and China to some extent does not understand the West. So that's one meaning, which I think is, is, is one that it would be easy to reflect in, in active policies. Another meaning would be where you actually try to combine this, but I'm a bit skeptical about that. Uh, how do you combine these two worlds that are opposites? You can combine cuisine, you can combine uh, demographics, um, you can combine architecture, but to combine the political systems of China and, uh, and the West is not something that one can see how it could be done or that it even is a desirable goal. So I would focus more on the, on the first goal of, of trying to have understanding of different worlds on their own terms. And this is about politics, it's about culture, uh, it's about language. Um, and I already see this here, by the way. I see a much higher and deeper understanding of China and Australia. I've had meetings by coincidence. I've, I've, I've uh, led seminars at the Treasury in London, in Canberra yesterday, and in Washington with people from the Treasury Department. And the level of understanding in Canberra is incomparable to the very low level of understanding in London and about how China operates. To just continue on that path would be my initial, without having thought deeply about this, would be my initial recommendation. Who else has got a question that they would like to ask? Um, that gentleman. Carl Lindbergh. Um, I've been interested in Asia for a long time, but you are very positive in your views of the future. I haven't heard the word military used yet. Where do you think that can cause troubles to your nice plan? Yes. Uh, if you read the book, you'll see that uh, there, there's many moments in the book where I ask that question. Oh, it is there. Where I ask that question and where I'm worried about the future. But I do think the world we're entering is a world of intensified conflict, but new, new forms of conflict. It's such an integrated world. I think, you know, what they said about the 19th century, that countries were too integrated to go to war, was not true of the 19th century, actually. It was very easy to disengage. You could do it in weeks. But I think it is true of the world today. Uh, but that doesn't mean that countries won't go to war if uh, you define war in different terms. I think we already have a trade war that is ongoing. We have information wars that are ongoing. I think we already, if you follow the news, have something that would deserve to be called infrastructure wars for the control of infrastructure. And we have, above all that, a technology war. We know that very soon we'll have an uh, entirely new industrial revolution with uh, uh, overwhelming new technologies, and there's a war going on about who will control those technologies. So even if we're in a world where military conflict may be avoided, and we may be always on the brink of it but capable of avoiding it, uh, I think it's a world where it will be very difficult to separate peace and war. Uh, the natural state seems to be a state in between peace and war where nations uh, communicate and have re economic relations, but where they are competing in a way that is not the competition of the last 50 years uh, for markets. It's a competition for power, economic power, technology, infrastructure, trade. Uh, all that seems to me to be developing rather fast. 
and the, the China and the United States are an example of, uh, of that uh, right now as we speak. Okay, we've got a time for at least one more question. The row behind. Hi, uh, Johannes Knutik, um, a student of international relations at the University of Melbourne. I was just wondering where you would position India in uh, the world that China is trying to build, considering its size and its own interests. Uh, India, I think uh, I've been criticized in some reviews uh, for not having, I have a chapter on Turkey, a chapter on Russia, a chapter on Europe, and a chapter on China. Um, and uh, there was the question of uh, whether I had neglected India a little bit. Um, I think it's true, and Indians accept this, Indian decision makers, that India is not quite at the level of participating in this great game. He's getting ready for it. Um, but, but it's not at that level. It's still struggling with domestic problems uh, of uh, organizing state power and state structures, of uh, eliminating uh, uh, poverty, um, and many others, many other struggles, which uh, stop it from playing an active global role. But two notes on India very quickly, because of course this would be the topic for its own book, but two notes. First of all, never assume that India is Western. The fact that it is democratic does not mean that it is Western. The way it looks at the world is not in any way the Western way of looking at the world. And if it will be an ally of Australia and the United States, it will be a very complicated and ambiguous ally. Uh, and I'm not sure even that it will be an ally. And second, that India is entering very dangerous period, I think. Uh, and I'll focus on the economy. India is now faced with a world where America is turning inwards. Uh, just three days ago, it canceled the benefits for Indian exports that had been there for decades. And there's really no reason to do that because India is not a developed country yet. Um, where Europe is too far away, and, um, very, very limited economic links. Uh, where China is uh, sucking out the air from, from Indian economic development. Um, and I think uh, it's difficult to see where the space is for the kind of fast economic growth that India needs. Uh, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm puzzled about what, what, what India will, will have to do to solve what I think is a much more difficult international uh, 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 um, arena than, than, than China faced if it wants to go through the same process of fast growth that China went through. Time for one quick one, if anyone uh, has a burning question. If not, then, um, Bruno, thank, it rem just remains to thank you for being um, so gracious with your thoughts and, and your time, particularly at, at the end of a very congested schedule. I'm glad you um, found time to, to work in Melbourne and uh, stop with Latrobe Asia. Um, it's my role to... Um, make Australia uh, more cognizant of, of uh, Asia, both vectors of, of opportunity, uh, but also of, of the, the, the glass half empty side that the gentleman alluded to earlier. Um, that, that is the contradiction of Asia, is that it is both vectors of, uh, of opportunity, but also vectors of threat that uh, sit on the, the doorstep. And that, I think, will be the dominant uh, challenge for, for Australia, certainly for uh, a generation, if not um, longer, to come. Uh, but also connecting back up with, with where you come from. Um, I'm British too, from, from that other side of the Eurasian continent. 
um, that we are grappling increasingly with, with those similar issues despite the, dif- the, different, the distance between us. And I think that certainly does come through from some of the grand connections that you, uh, you posit uh, in, in the dawn of Eurasia. Um, if anyone hasn't read it, I thoroughly recommend it. Bruno has kindly agreed to stay on for a little longer uh, and books will be available for signing at the outside in the lobby. Um, it just like remains to thank you, Bruno, and could I ask you please to show your appreciation as well.